welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me, I'm delighted to say, as always, is Dario Linares. Merry Christmas, Dario. Merry Christmas. How are you? How's the carnage going down there? <laughs> carnage is... it's insane, yeah. It's insane. Well, Tessa was poorly Christmas Eve, and then for a bit of Christmas Day, so she managed to pack in a whole Christmas Day in about half a day. Um and it was just absolute chaos, but it was wonderful. And um, yeah, yesterday we started to sift through the wreckage. <laughs> There's a Christmas movie to be made about our lives, isn't there? Where they cut between your Christmas and my Christmas, <laughs> which basically involves sitting on the settee and drinking and eating for like days on end and not doing very much at all. Mind you, we went for a, a little um, trip around London last night late on just to see the lights and and what have you so so that was nice and we've been doing walks every day but yeah i mean it's funny because i think a lot of places have been closing not necessarily just for christmas but because of the virus but yeah a very different uh, experience i have at christmas time that's for sure yep it's been lovely tessa's been full of christmas spirit so yeah we've had a, we've had a lovely time it's been nice and quiet um just at home just the the five of us with the dog yeah, that's we've only good. been we've only had christmas to really think about so it's been very nice yeah and now we're in that twilight zone of between christmas and new year which i always think is is a nice time because it's kind of like if you do anything it's um it's kind of like a bonus but there's no pressure on it you know and and we've both been doing lots of rewatching, haven't we but funnily enough we both just off mic there we were talking about die hard you know the, the classic Christmas movie we're not going to get into an argument about whether it's a Christmas movie or not yeah, I argument last night um, oh did you because I was trying to I was giving Beth a bit of context about the fact that people question whether it's a Christmas movie or not and then she sort of thought that I was right. questioning whether it's a Christmas movie or not so every time something Christmas happens she's like well this is definitely a Christmas movie and I'm like I never said it wasn't right. um, I have no opinion of whether it is or not it feels quite Christmassy to me yeah um, it depends yeah. on your criteria because I can I can I can understand why people would call it not a Christmas movie because to me Christmas isn't part of the plot or isn't part of the the reason why the why people are doing things it just happens to be at christmas you know what i mean yes so i can see that distinction but it doesn't really you know i'm not i'm not going to get into an argument about it well let's do it let's do it. <laughs> i was going to get i saw a keanu reeves meme the other day where where it was kind of like i've, I've reached the age where people start having an argument i'm like on you go <laughs> you know what i mean i haven't got the time or the energy and that's definitely my uh attitude going forward that's yeah, for sure absolutely i kind of anytime i drift onto twitter i mean immediately sort of closing it going yep uh, don't need to be here thanks yeah um, yeah but it's still a great movie um and it's a great movie to watch at christmas even if you don't think it's a christmas movie it's um got enough festivity about it it's just a really good movie so yeah that's been a yeah, yeah that's yeah. been a nice rewatch and i rewatched edward this morning i just told you i watched Ed about half five this morning with a sleeping baby on me which is nice. just one of my favorite films i love that movie so much. yeah yeah so. uh interesting because it was funny because i, I was um one of the new streaming services that I forget the name of now, and this is just com- coming off the top of my head, but I think it was because I was uh, watching some sport. I wanted to see some sport that was happening, and it was on this one particular streaming service. And alongside the sport, though, there was like, you know, normal shows. And one of them was the a, a documentary about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and the whole business of that. So it was interesting. And then you keep, I keep seeing, I think it's Hugo Boss, he's advertising with his electric guitar, completely unironically. And it's just like one of the worst things. I, I just like, no, Johnny, no, 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 don't do it. You're an old man. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Edward's great. You can't, you can't kind of. Uh... That's a kind of remarkable fall from grace, isn't it? I mean, that period of, of his career, just it's untouchable. A dead man, Edward Scissorhands, 
and he's just like, what What happened? Well, Pirates of the Caribbean yeah, happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. He literally sold his soul. You can sort of, I remember being at a press conference for Pirates of the Caribbean, maybe two, and he was there and you could just tell like there was just nothing behind the eyes anymore. He was done. <laughs> it was just like, I'm a Disney, I'm a Disney shill now and that's it. And it was just so sad because you're like, you were amazing, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, I, I've been um, rewatching as well and just sort of an addendum to our conversation last week about um, sequels and adaptations. So we, we watched Alien and Aliens back to back and I was just saying to you off mic that I can't think of another better example or example where somebody has done this so right, where they've taken a film that probably didn't, was never going to have a sequel attached to it, but they've taken the property in inverted commas and retained everything that was great about the original, but then added on, you know, if you're talking about James Cameron, his own you know, vision, his own way of doing things onto the top of what was a great idea. And it works, you know what I mean? It's like, sometimes that doesn't work, but I can't think of anything where you could say, I mean, my my view on it is Aliens is as good as Alien, but in a completely different way. You know, it just becomes it becomes like a war film and it does all the things that James Cameron does does well, but still retains that sort of, you know, some of the creeping around the corridors, where the, where's the alien kind of thing going to jump out, which, you know, makes the, the original great and still retains all of that stuff about company politics and the corporate element of it, which kind of gets lost with all of the overt philosophical stuff in the later, like Prometheus and Covenant, which is which is really not great. Yeah, I've not even seen Covenant. Yeah, I just think that it's it's amazing, isn't it? Like it gets to the point where you can't really say one is, not that you really should anyway, but whether one is better yeah. than the other because they don't feel like, like say, they don't feel like com- comparable films, even though so much of them is connected and and uh, and sort of a continuation. It's kind of remarkable. Mm. Yeah. Well, so here we are. This is 2021 in review. So what we're going to do this year, we, we kind of change, we tend to change formats every year, don't we somehow, but that's fine. We can do what we want. Um, but we're, we're, we're going to have a couple of mentions of films that we think are worth mentioning, but haven't quite made what we um, whittled down to our top three, really. And and I don't know how you've thought about this, Neil, but I was kind of like, what are the films I've that have really registered with me and also maybe ones that haven't got as much attention as perhaps they could have done perhaps because of the kinds of films that they are or the you know the conditions that we're in right now in terms of streaming plus covid so i I don't think there's any rhyme or reason as to why things land other than massive massive named movies you know that every are just going to cut through all the where they're getting released and all that kind of stuff you know yeah, no, I think that's that's very similar to how I approached the two of the three that sort of ended up in the in this top three. One was definitely an over, I think, an overlooked film mm. in terms of the the casualties of distribution, and the other one was yeah, one that I think has just stuck with me from very early on in the in the you know, in in our season. I think that I just think yeah, just it. It didn't really go from when I was thinking about what the, my favourite things I've seen this year. It was right at the top, but it's it's one that I think has has popped up on a few, you know, sort of esteemed lists, but certainly could 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 be sort of talked about more. Great. So yeah, do you wanna do you wanna kick off and give us your two sort of honourable mentions? Yeah. So we've got a couple that we're gonna sort of yeah sort of mention so that uh you know because obviously that's it's not it's never an easy three um <laughs> but uh but there was a couple of films that i did want to sort of bring a little bit of a spotlight to one of them doesn't really need it but 
which is Todd Haynes's The Velvet Underground uh, documentary. And it's it's been an amazing year for music documentary, an annoying year for me as I'm writing a book. And it literally seems like every month I need to dedicate more time to yet another notable film. You know, there's music documentaries released all the time, but this year there's been some really significant ones. Um, Sparks Brothers, Summer of Soul, and the Polystyrene film. And then Todd Haynes's Velvet Underground, which for me is is I think the best and certainly my favourite of the year. I just think that what I loved about it is kind of like I've sort of seen it criticised for not telling the whole story, or which I just never want from a you know I never want a single documentary. And the the ones that try and do that I don't like. You know the John Coltrane and Miles Davis ones, which I bring up a lot because they just they're just tick box films or Wikipedia films, as someone I know called them. Whereas what I really loved about the Velvet Underground was it was restating the story in a particular context, um, which is how queer they were as a band and how strange they were as a band. And what I just loved was because it it made them dirty again and it made them sleazy again and it made them strange again in a way that they've been sanitized, you know, by having, you know, their that famous album cover on a t-shirt that you can buy in Topshop. You know, it, it makes them seem like this kind of kooky. But they weren't. They were a truly avant-garde band and part of a truly kind of special and unique avant-garde scene and the way he chose to put them in the context of experimental film and pop art in the I just thought was was such a a brilliant thing and it just it was just visually uh and sort of sonically pleasurable and the fact that I just think that John Cale and Mo Tucker are such interesting people and it you know through their interviews you really got a sense of the kind of band that they were and what made them the band that you know so unique so often in 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 music docs you get have interviews with people who don't you're just like how did you make that music <laughs> you know um you just seem completely asinine um whereas here you're like no these are smart interested angry <laughs> dark people um and it's all in the music so yeah i absolutely absolutely love that film we have all come here together over there andy warhol we have this chance to combine music and art and films all together. We're sponsoring a new band. It's called The Velvet Underground. And me, I'm in a rock and roll band. That was my first time in New York, and I was appalled. This place is filthy. <laughs> Cinema, money, parties. It was outrageous. People came because the cameras were running. They thought they could become famous. At the center of it is the exploding art world. It opened your eyes to a lot of possibilities. We started getting a following, but a lot of radio stations wouldn't play our stuff. The sound, not only was it new, but it was radically different. We were studying natural harmonics. Lowe's music was very heavy. Everything he does in that craggly voice of his resonated. That weirdness, it shouldn't have existed in this space. His music sounded like nothing else. And all of a sudden, it would stop like that, and the audience would be dead silent. The Velvet Underground had hypnotized them. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, though, because when I was watching it, I was kind of like, 
that's why you know avant-garde sometimes can you know can you can be like where's the where what is this kind of thing but because there's parts of it where you're like well that shouldn't work but it just kind of did you know that like for example you know the who's the god I'm forgetting her name the the um the lead singer they got in who was the the swedish uh woman. oh nico yeah yeah so they, they you know there's that whole thing about the fact that she couldn't sing in inverted commas but then they found a way to use her voice and which gave this sort of ethereal tone so it's all, all almost that that thing which is great about which we've said about you know the um the frank the film about frank sidebottom where yeah. you know there's an avant-garde band and and why are they good because you can't figure it out and they just are but i i you know i know what you say in terms of their, their sort of intellectual and political the the force behind the music in that that sense is really interesting and yeah i agree it's it was a really great watch and i love i love the video essayistic side of it really where it was just the film did embrace the form of the era and the people it was trying to depict it wasn't just you know here are these straight talking heads just doing the thing and telling you the story it really sort of tried to build an interesting visual experience that was in keeping with the ethos of the of the band and and what they represented maybe yeah absolutely i'm glad you enjoyed it as well the other one i wanted to give a quick mention to is another one i I know you've seen as well i think you saw it quite recently which was um ben sharrick's limbo which is an absolutely just a wonderful wonderful movie i think um really funny just amazing kind of ability to manage tones it, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Because there's lots of talk in the last couple of weeks about older, whiter comedians talking about, you know, well, you can't be funny anymore and you can't say this, and you, you know, this kind of classic cancel culture stuff. And here is a film that takes characters who are so often the, you know, the butt of the joke or have been historically. And it would be easy to, to slide into easy pastiche, um, if not kind of cruel exploitation, having this kind of, you know, sort of group of uh, refugee uh, men in the middle of nowhere. And it never does. You know, they're allowed to be kind of funny and quirky and human, but also have these kind of complex inner lives, which are just, I just, I just thought it was brilliant. And it looked amazing. And I just felt that there was such a wonderful kind of Bill Forsyth quality to it, you know, that these are, these are people in a place and the relationship between the, the place and the people was just beautifully realized. I just think it's fabulous. Hello? Hello, Mama. Mama? Winston. One of the guys from Scotland. I'm sorry, 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 I'm if you are calling about an asylum claim, please hang up. How long have you been waiting? 32 months and five days. Yeah, it really is a, a really sort of deadpan but hugely funny film in that in that kind of gallows humour, you know, minimalist humour element. It really captures the sort of risible, you know, ridiculousness and tragedy of the way that we treat 
immigrants or asylum seekers and the whole narrative around that and the fact that they're in this place you know which is just in the middle of nowhere and and the sort of characteristics of that place where you know if there is racism or there is the way that they're treated as uh, is uh, as outsiders but also then it's funny how that becomes more complicated than the you know the black and white way in which we tend to sort of understand what racism is you know what i mean where you know they come up and who are you what are you doing here oh would you like a lift lift down to the chippy kind of thing do you know what i mean it's just there's a weird sort of you know complexity of human uh, of human relations that i think gets lost a lot of the time and and it's interesting i think when you see films about immigration and the system of, of of the uk when it comes to the way that we treat you know citizens or non-citizens alike i think there are there are films that could be very i mean i know flea for example was a a film that's got a lot of plaudits and was very close to sort of being on our lists i think but a a very serious film and a very and and has used its you know animated aesthetics to to provide a kind of accessibility to us a really brutal and bleak story and here again the accessibility is through the sort of deadpan humor and it's funny because it's not either. It, it's not like Four Lions either. It doesn't sort of go too far in being re- politically satirical in a really overt way. You know, it's more about this guy's sort of his own situation and how that uniqueness is also universal because there's there, there's other you know his friends or, or his comrades, let's say in this in this situation, are all looking for a certain thing and all in many ways running away from from things as well. But yeah, the 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 sort of overall tone and the storytelling and the, the the little individual vignettes and set pieces and the way it's shot is is just really is really really well done yeah yeah it's like the, the central relationship and friendship is that that difference isn't it you know in terms of the the meaningness or the the arbitrariness you know and one, one friend is trying mm. it's kind of clinging to the meaningful you know and cleaning yeah and, and sort of the main character just feels he just knows it's a kind of arbitrary system um yeah and he's kind of yeah, stuck yeah, in yeah. it it's just yeah it's almost kind of kafkaesque in terms but but a kind of mod- modern version where there's a kind of real knowingness of i know the system yeah. that i'm sort of sort of stuck within yeah just great great british movie and probably yeah one of my favorite british movies of the year so yeah so those are my two sort of honorable mentions um before we get into sort of my 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 countdown of my favorite three but uh daria what were the films that you wanted to sort of flag up as you know not quite making it but sort of worthy of of discussion yeah again a a couple here that i think probably you know some people as you've said with your examples have 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 talked about and have been on on lists one probably more than other i mean the first one is Quo Vadis Aida, which is a film that came out early on in the year, but I didn't see till quite recently, directed by Jasmila Zibanic. And it's based on the true events of the Srebrenica massacre, but is told from the perspective of a school teacher turned UN ambassador, who's played by uh, Jasna Durizic, I think it's pronounced. And it it's basically the story of this base uh the un peacekeeping controlled base where they're trying to evacuate the uh the non-serbs so the croats and muslims um as the the serbs come and take over this town of srebrenica and it's told from the perspective of this translator so on the one hand you get her talking to her, her her town so she kind of she's a school teacher so she knows everyone in the town and there is this sort of her arbitrating between the the, the serbian leaders who come in and the un peacekeepers and the un peacekeepers have this kind of faith that the serbians are going to allow safe passage 
out of the town. And, you know, that ends up not being the case. But what's really interesting is this conundrum that the the translator finds herself in. So she's she's just sort of having to relay what's being said in some ways, but then she knows more about what's going on. And so she, does she tell the, you know, the community who are, you know, they can only fit so many in this base and a lot of them are, are kind of just stuck outside waiting to try and get in. And there is, there's that element of it, but then there's the element of it of her family are stuck outside. So she's, she's trying to get her family to be accepted to come into the base. So, you know, she's asking her, the superiors in the, U, in the UN and they're all being really officious and bureaucratic. We can't let any more in. We can't let any more in. And part of it is about her kind of battling with this, the, the banality of the bureaucracy. You know, are there names on the list? No, they're not on the list. Oh, well, you need to get them on the list. But the printer's broken. I can't print out a new list. And there's just this kind of, you know, a little bit in, in a similar way to Limbo where, you know, we live in this sort of modern bureaucracy and, and the computer says no. And when it's a matter of life and death, it's absolutely infuriating. And it's, you know, it's really brutal and it gets more brutal as, as time goes in because essentially it's it's kind of a, a Holocaust movie. So you know when these moments are are coming that people are getting rounded up and you're, and you're like, these people are not getting rounded up to be given safe passage. They're getting rounded up because there is absolute tragedy in the offing. And yeah, it's it's really, really well done. There's a, there's a moment at the very end where you just kind of like, wow, how do you deal with that situation where, you know, the war is over and the school teacher goes back to the village and is basically living next door to people who earlier on had a gun to her, uh, her head. As I said, they have been issued an ultimatum. Aircrafts are on standby and ready to launch an attack on all positions held by the Republic of Serbsk Army. Evo nas 11. jula 1995. godine u Srpskoj Srebrenici. Poklanjamo srpskom narodu ovaj grad. Ljudi, baza je puna. Niko više ne može ući u bazu. you know, it has that feeling a little bit like Son of Saul or Schindler's List, where you're trying to wrap your head around how dark human nature, human not human nature, but you know that when society is organised on the on the basis of ethnic prejudices, and that's taken to the absolute extreme, to the moment of of genocide, really, it, yeah, it just really gets you, you know, hear about God, how can how can human beings do that, and then they go on with their lives. You know, it's yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty hardcore in that. So you have to be kind of in the right place for for watching that that film. But um, yeah, you haven't seen that one yet, have you, Neil? No, and it's been it's been popping up. Um, yeah, I thought I I remember it coming out and then forgot about it. But it has been popping up on a few people's sort of end of year roundups. Um, and then I saw that you'd you put it on the list. So I was, yeah, it's, it's it sounds fascinating. And yeah, I look forward to uh, I look forward to catching up with it. 
Um, and then the other the the other film I wanted to mention was Martin Eden, which I know you have seen and liked. Um, so this is the Italian romantic epic, I suppose, based on uh, a, a novel by Jack London, which is originally set in California, but the director Pietro Marcello has reset it in post-war Italy. But it's interesting because it's kind of like it's historically uncertain as well. The sort of time shifts that are going on and. and a really interesting use of of documentary footage and, and and shot footage, which has got this documentary feel to it, that gives it a sort of a, a kind of an uncertain historicity. The post-war class system in, in Italy is the kind of context, and you know it's about an aspiring writer who wants to rise here above his class position and lack of education, and it's a really well done depiction of the interrelationship between the personal and the political and how personal success and recognition can come with the side effect that you become disillusioned about what you're writing for in the first place and also you know at the heart of it is this well at the heart of it is is this romantic drama that has the basic formulation of you know there's two people who are basically in different class strata and you know getting together is gonna is gonna cause problems but that does drive again the the central character's design I mean it's interesting how much is it his class politics that's driving his writing how much is it he just wants to prove to this this woman that he loves and 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 their family and her family that you know he is worthy and uh Luca Marinelli in the in the lead role is excellent as the eponymous protagonist because he kind of captures the uncertainty of unfulfilled ambition you know that 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 thing that he believes he's destined for something bigger, but also that that you know this slow awakening of an indignation of class consciousness is a really great scene around the dinner table where, you know, he's getting talked down to by the the, the family of this uh, of his great love. You know, he's it, it kind of is a catalyst for his his proper sort of awakening, I, I suppose, in class terms. And then as it goes towards the end, there's this really interesting shift in tone where he becomes successful. And it, and there's a big t- time shift as well. And he then, as an older man, is has this sort of jaded, cynical superiority as someone who has successfully climbed the social and artistic ladder. But really, has that been at, at the? Has has anything really changed? H- has his writing made any kind of difference, or has he kind of just basically exploited, in an indiv- individualist sense? The, the people that he was writing about and, and trying to set set free, let, let, let's say, through, through his writing. Et moi, je m'appelle Elena. Martin. Eden. Ho deciso che voglio essere come voi, parlare come voi, pensare come voi. Oscì, ma con qua facessi? Nassusa. Ho riflettuto molto su me stesso e ho sentito come uno spirito creatore che mi divampava dentro, che mi incitava a fare di me uno degli orecchi attraverso cui il mondo sente, uno degli occhi attraverso cui il mondo vede. Insomma, voglio fare lo scrittore. Qua la gente viene a lavorare. Ti stai affaticando troppo, eh? Fassi rotto mio. Questo libro non è male che è, ma almeno sai che parte solo la prima libro. And it doesn't do that thing of having the the sweeping denouement of the self-made hero, um, which obviously an American movie probably would have done. It 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 really sort of grounds it in this sort of loneliness and, and delusionment of someone who's a success individually, but 
really nothing, you know, the, the status quo is, uh, of his entire life and where he came from has, hasn't really changed. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was fantastic. And I, yeah, I think I liked it for, for similar reasons, I think, you know, particularly, yeah, the, the, the lack of a kind of, of both a really overtly tragic ending, which is often, you know, films about writers often end, you know, with a tragic, woe is me, why was I never understood? And his work is kind of understood and poured over and critiqued, and it's still, he's still kind of sort of separate from it in many ways. And also, yeah, there's no grandstanding sense of like, my life was worthwhile. It was a real, yeah, sort of ambivalent, slow crawl into into the end, which I thought was great. I mean, I thought it was a great film about writing, but I, and I thought it was a really interesting film about alignment, you know, and about how society is, he is clearly, which is, he's, he's that kind of Jack London character, isn't it? He wants to be this kind of maverick, free spirit kind of individual, but the society is forcing him to align constantly. And that's against his, his instinct, isn't it? You know, even, even within the, the, the working class and the, the kind of the Marxist groups that he's in, he's not, he's not wholly, he doesn't wholly buy in, he's not wholly attached he he knows that he's never going to be able to make that leap up to being in the aristocracy, but that's the expectation is that he can pass. So it's a really interesting film that sort of shows that what can happen when you, this, this myth of the individual as being, you know, that society won't let you be an individual. You have to align somewhere and he can't align anywhere. And it kind of just wears him down despite success. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And also it sort of reiterates that idea that you've got the working classes on one side and then you've got kind of like the political or elites, the aristocracy, the people who own everything, basically. And then you've got the, the free-spirited artist intellectual types who don't, who really are kind of, don't fit into either category. And, and maybe they do want to represent or at least highlight the plight of the working class, but they're never going to be the working class. And therefore there's always a sort of tension of about where their position is and, yeah. and is everything self-serving yeah absolutely you know in in that individualized sense and it's does art have any and writing have any impact you know beyond just being good in and of itself and then a, a way to be recognized and and accepted as a as somebody of of value for that for simply for that though yeah and then he's got that there's a great kind of relationship he has with his mentor patron figure who is <laughs> a genuine bohemian in many ways you know yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah and that's such a touching relationship you know because he obviously doesn't he does he does not die with any dignity or you know no. sense of grandeur at all you know it's a really yeah i think it's a really smart film and um, and it was just a great adaptation because i've not read the book you know but like the facts of the book in terms of like say the setting and the time and everything feels radically different but you get the sense that here is someone who who understood what the the premise and the the thesis of the book was to them and has transplanted it into a context that they know and has done such wonderful things with it in terms of the, the storytelling that i just thought it was yeah really really good movie okay so uh yeah i mean so let's get on to our top three of the year i mean again i i don't know if you've got an order particularly we kind of agree on one so we'll save that to to the end but do you want to kick off with your number three yeah i've got the order that i, I wanted to to sort of to talk about them in so and yeah yeah there's one that we'll, we'll both talk about together i know so yeah s similar to what we were sort of saying there about the kind of the the filmmaking and the storytelling of of martin eden um a film that I really loved this year, which I think was a remarkable piece of storytelling that was both in the lineage of these filmmakers' work, 
but also sort of signal something new and manage to do something really fascinating with little bits and and pieces of different genres was Christine Malloy and Joe Lawler's uh, Rose Plays Julie, which, I mean, is, is maybe a sort of 2020 film or maybe even a 2019 film in terms of festivals, and but it was released this year um, and we talked to them for the, the podcast and, yeah, I just, I really love this movie. Similar to Limbo, it's an Irish film, but it certainly feels like a British in terms of the kind of the sort of the, the island cinema that was sort of coming out that felt like filmmakers who know how to use the form and weren't sort of worried about a particular type of film or story to make. They told a very uncomfortable story, uh, a very difficult story, a very challenging story. And I just thought really, really wonderful ways. Yeah, I I, I, th- I thought this was just, yeah, just an absolutely fantastic piece of work and, and an exciting film, you know, where you sort of follow filmmakers through their work and sort of see them grow and change and evolve and then all of a sudden take this leap where everything they've been working on in terms of tone in terms of style coalesces into something which is not just a really great sort of indie movie or kind of hybrid doc or experimental work but something something else something really fresh and exciting i think about you all the time the kind of life you might be leading Sometimes I think about the day we'll meet and what that will be like. I just don't, I don't want to cause any trouble. I just want to talk. That's all. How did it happen? Or can you tell me? I need to know who he is. And if I tell you his name, what will you do? Have you seen him? Yes. I have. From a distance a couple of times. You haven't spoken to him or No. Not yet. Not yet. Doesn't it bother you? Daddy's out there. Acting as if nothing happened. I am really struggling with how that makes me feel. Yeah, it's probably the most accessible piece. Mm, Definitely, yeah. And again, sometimes when you say that, it's kind of damning with faint praise in a way, but this really isn't because it's not, oh, you know, it's not we're selling out and just, uh, you know, (laughs) making a zombie movie for you. It, It really is quite a complex and in-depth piece of work in every way, really. You know, and when I say that, I mean, you know, there are themes which are kind of abstract, but linked together when it comes to things like death and history and memory and, you know, how we how we understand the relationship to our, our lives and our reality, which is, interestingly, I've just sort of picked up, this is kind of a theme of a lot of the films this that we're, that we're talking about, how we construct what our life actually is you know, based on things like memory and that and that kind of stuff and, and performance and, and this kind of thing. And then it's got just got some really interesting visual elements to it. You know, there's right at the beginning that you think it's going to be this strange horror movie and then it becomes a sort of body shock thing, but, you know, with the, 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 the veterinary element to it. And then there's a, you know, the, the, there's a kind of not fatal attraction is the wrong word, but we need to talk about Kevin kind of like, is the protagonist actually a psycho themselves? But again, it's not, it, it doesn't go down that route. 
and then uh, you know as it comes to the sort of the denouement which is really you know coldly absorbing if i can call it that and with you know great performances throughout it's just a a really interesting watch which i think actually bears a second and third watch because you're kind of like i mean the first time around it's like what what did i just see there is that was that good and it's not you know it's not it resists that easy sort of oh yeah that was all right or no i really loved it it re- kind of resists that you're like okay what was that that, that happened there that because i've seen these types of films before but it is like you say it's sort of borrowing from different elements and putting to putting them together in, in really interesting ways yeah fascinating film really yeah and it's there's that kind of question around sort of horror and thriller cinema at the moment about you know the kind of the psychological backstory and, and the depth of that and this is a film which has you know a kind of deep traumatic history in terms of the character stories but it it never feels like it's trying to give a message about trauma or male violence mm. or it's a really clever interweaving of sort of theme and and story everything that is possibly sort of aligned with something like me too or that kind of thing is is so well integrated into the story that it feels like this is the it's just storytelling you know it's not exploiting those things but it's certainly not being like oh isn't this you know isn't this a terrible thing that men do and have to kind of reckon with you know the reckoning is stark in this film as you sort of say towards the end but it feels like it's the stories driving everything and the performances are just absolutely astonishingly good you know the three main performances in the film are just absolutely spellbinding um and again murky you know all of them are not easily drawn as victim or hero or that there's there's so much at play that that makes it really absorbing which i think is a really good word for it um None of them are a type, you know, which is really, which is really refreshing. No, not at all. And that's where it kind of connects to their previous work, you know, like they're they're able to bring those really rich, interesting, complex characters um, with these other things at play uh, in terms of the genre um, flourishes that they're using. Yeah, it's great. Awesome, fantastic. Yeah, we love uh, Lawler and Malloy. We do. We we stand them, as the kids yeah. say. <laughs> that's true. Um, Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Which I think is an apt term, considering the, the etymology of the Stan for a film like this. Um, uh, an appropriate usage. So what about you, Daria? What's the first one you want to you wanna get into? Yeah, interesting, because there are sort of some connections here with the, the, the film I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about next, which is called Preparations to Be Together for an Unknown Period of Time. And this is a film I saw on Mubi, and it's still there, so you can go and watch it. I highly recommend it, obviously. Um, Directed by Lily Horvath. And this is about a high-level neurosurgeon called Marta, played by Natasa Stork, who returns to Budapest from the United States. And she's going back there to meet a a colleague, a male colleague, who she had a romantic meeting with at a conference in New Jersey. And... You know, it starts with her kind of arriving and then going to this place and he doesn't turn up at the appointed time. And when she eventually catches up with him, he denies meeting her. In fact, he denies knowing her at all. He kind of, you know, blows her off, says, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. And so it starts this kind of journey off for us and for her in terms of what's going on here with him. Why is he done that you know what I mean am I being ghosted here what's going but then it it starts to become more ambiguous in terms of did this really happen is she somehow making this up or is it some kind of fantasy delusion 
that's going on in her mind. And throughout the film, it's punctuated by she's having kind of meetings with her psychoanalyst or a, a counsellor, you know what I mean? It's like a psychologist. So there's this dialogue that's going on about, you know, she's describing the guy and describing the meeting. And then as, as things go on, it's kind of like, but did this really happen? Maybe I made it all up. And it really kind of got got its hooks into me on a, on a on this psychological level. What's really interesting is this allegory of her working as a neurosurgeon and and the sort of mysteries of consciousness. So on the one hand, she's she's sort of doing these operations with the physical brain, and yet all the whole movie is about how essentially our mind creates our reality. So there's really sort of interesting clever things going on and, and you know it, it's a really well set up world so she goes back to Hungary and she's dealing with these chauvinistic doctors who who are jealous basically because she's like at the top of her profession has managed to get out of Hungary and they're all questioning why have you come back and, and like her boss sort of says you came back because of a man you know you know all women are stupid even the clever ones you know there's this kind of chauvinism going on and it's also got a kind of Milan Kundera vibe in terms of, you know, there's this intensity of love in adverse situations, essentially in Eastern Europe, you know what I mean? But I liked it because the audiovisual craft is not showy, but every every camera position and every movement is designed to tell us something about the psychology of this this character. And yeah, I rewatched it again just the other day and just to make sure I kind of st- stand by how good I think it is in a in a un you know unassuming way. It's not going to get a lot of attention, but if you catch yourself in the right mood where you really want to sort of get into a get into a story, you know, a, a kind of psychological story, I really recommend it. Körülbelül két hónappal ezelőtt egy New Jersey-ben tartott konferencián megismerkedtem valakivel. Azt éreztem, hogy megvan. Én ezt kerestem. János! Hát, szia! Azt hiszem, összetéveszt valakivel. Ne ragudjon, most látom ment életemben először. Bocsánat. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, it's not one I'd, I'd I I was aware of at all. Um, and it does sound very similar, I think, in terms of, um, yeah, to 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 Rose plays Julie. Um, and also reminded me that you're much better at telling people what actually happens in these films. I just go, oh, isn't this great? <clears throat> and people are like, but what's it about? So yeah, nice to get a bit of a story as well as uh, an assessment of it as well. Well, I just think with certain movies, because nobody will have seen this, you know, very few people will have seen this, and it's like I say, it's available on movies. Just just having that that little few lines about what what goes on with it with it you know if, it, if we were talking about june you don't really need to do that but you know what i mean with certain films i think it's kind of more more appropriate it's a bit of a bit of an explanation of june would be good uh, i jest uh, <laughs> it. no but i think it's interesting to hear it because obviously knowing <laughs> yes a little dig at the the big blockbuster which we like um yeah no it's interesting because i think obviously in rose plays julie yeah there is a sort of hearing your that, that that story you start to see the links between these films and you start to realize sort of what's in the water in terms of the types of films and the types of themes that people are are gravitating towards even in sort of the last couple of years because i guess these films have been have been floating around at festivals and various things so i think it's interesting that that, that so much of it is yeah there are so many films where fact and reality are 
up for grabs, you know, and that's perception and subjectivity and how people piece together the narratives of their lives is so there's lots of that at play which i think is is very symptomatic of the age that we live in um for sure so yeah that's that's going to go on my watch list as well uh thanks for that and yeah well done for picking something which which not many people have seen so next for me is a film which i don't think many people have seen simply because it got such a small almost kind of non-release so this is a film that I've been tracking for a while because it's one of my favourite filmmakers, Steven Soderbergh. And yeah, sort of, I was really excited to see it because it it's a heist movie and he's sort of back in, in sort of territory where I really, really like him. And then just never, never showed up, you know, and, and it didn't get any kind of, it had no cinema release, but it didn't even get coverage when it was released. All of a sudden, you know, it just popped up on on i think it was i watched it on apple i bought it because you can't even rent it you'd have to buy it i think it popped up on sky cinema which is where i saw the and i don't have sky cinema but i've got now tv so it's, you see what the films are and it popped up and i was like oh it's it's here and i just i hate that we and you know i, I know we're not going to spend too much time moaning because we want to celebrate but i do hate in a, that we live in a world where a movie like this just absolutely does not get released or does not get talked about i just you know what kind of world are we living in um I just, yeah, I mean, that just kind of upsets me that a filmmaker like Soderbergh is released without without any fanfare. But yeah, so I, I kind of, I bought it and like I said, I've been looking forward to it. And literally from the first opening frames, the title, even the font of the credits, David Holmes's score, I was like, yeah, done. You know, like take, take my money. Um, and I think that, you know, I sort of mentioned this before, but one of the things I've really kind of gravitated towards this year was sort of pleasure. You know, and I don't mean kind of a brainless, but I've, re- I've kind of an aesthetic pleasure. You know, I wanted to spend time looking at people and looking at films that were well crafted and looked good and felt cinematic. You know, a film that we didn't get to shout about, but that sort of ticked that box for me was The Green Knight, which I just thought was pleasurable. You know, I just enjoyed spending time in that in that space with those characters. And this no sudden move is just i loved it i just thought you know what a cast what a filmmaker again kind of like he just knows where to put the camera <laughs> the dialogue was great twists and turns it's not as explosively original as out of sight was at the time you know where that felt you know and it's very much in that it's in the out of sight mode but it's good like it's just a really 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 good movie with Brendan Fraser. You know, uh, unrecognisable else, as well. It was like, wow. Unrecognisable, <laughs> yeah. He is not uh, a young leading man anymore, I'm afraid. <laughs> but, you know, none of us are, but you know what I mean? <laughs> true, true. Yes, yes. It's not a slight on Brendan. We're all we're all on that. But, but, you know, it was great in the 90s and early 2000s where you would sort of see these older actors or, you know, sort of turn back up in these kinds of movies in a different... Now he's this kind of sleazy character actor great I'm, I'm i'm here for the i think it's called the the brononessance or something um because he's in a few films now um but this is obviously the first one that's been released and he's yeah just you know it's it, the, the story is you know benicio del toro and don Cheadle are sort of low-life um petty criminals who are thrown together for a job and it kind of backfires um and then they have to both kind of get out and get away with the the loot while kind of surviving and also sort of crossing and double crossing where there's several other characters at play uh, very intricately plotted but always just pleasurable to spend time with those guys just yeah kind of doing their thing 
said a man wants to see me. Alley out back. Can't come in here. What is he, white? Oh, boy. So what's the score? We're sending a man that works in an office to pick something up. You are part of a babysitting team watching his family while he does it. Good morning. Everything is normal, except... What do you want? Is that something you'd say, normal Monday? I'm gonna shoot you right now. Can I go home now? Wait at the house after. What do you mean after? Right off of your feet. What is going on? What's going on, big guy? Yeah, what are we doing? We're following instructions. Are you helping me or are you not helping me? No, 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 no. Thank you. Set up, man. God called me. Offering me ten thousand dollars to turn you in, fifteen for the white guy. Think you're the only one that can make a move? I can make a move too. Have the keys. I'd like to listen to the radio. Yeah, I bought it too after after you you'd um, you you mentioned it. I thought, oh no, because that's Soderbergh, and I like you know it's a heist movie. I saw that. God, so, oh, got to watch that. And. Um, yeah, it's funny because we watched it like it was the next film both um, me and my girlfriend watched after Matrix Resurrections. So we went to the cinema oh, okay. to watch Matrix. And it was great being in the cinema because there was no one else in there. And we it was like, uh, you know, was it Boxing Day that we went? I think probably Boxing Day. And I kind of enjoyed the Matrix Resurrections in certain ways, but I, I just think it suffers from what all of these films suffers from. We talk about time and time again. And what's what was ironic about it was, A, there was a great movie in there, but they didn't make that movie. You know what I mean? And there were some great ideas in the first half, but they were ground down by the just the play, rehashing of the first. So it was like, it did what The Force Awakens did for Star Wars. It's like, let's make the new one just like the old one for the first two thirds and then do something a little bit different in in the in the second half. And then it just becomes like the other two sequels. The second half becomes like the other two sequels. So it's a really odd experience watching it, I found. But after that, then coming to this, which is so complete as a film, the craft is so high. And it's not, to, you know, I'm not saying that The Matrix is not well made, but you know exactly why. I mean, it's not that it's a simple movie. You know exactly what's going on even though it's a complex kind of double crossy type movie you know exactly where everybody is in space you know it's one of those it's a period movie that doesn't look like everybody's wearing a wig and and nothing fits properly it looks like a proper film world yeah i can't i can't say how highly i think the craft of this movie is and it's just absolutely ridiculous that that this is just content on on a streaming service that that really you know and it's you have to go and buy you have to go and like physically look for it's just it's just ridiculous and and what you were just saying there i mean again i don't want to go off on a, on a massive tirade but it is that there is something wrong with the way that we find out about films and again we i, mean, I say we here we don't have this problem because we you know we kind of will look for stuff you know what I mean? Oh, we'll find that. Oh, yeah, that, that that's there. Where is it? You know, how can we how can we see it? How can we talk about it? But it's like that that sense of there's a there's a movie culture beyond what everybody is talking about is over. So what we are doing, or what we try to do, or we, we what we want to continue to do on the podcast is do our own thing 
and just when people come and and listen they're getting you know that that word of mouth discovery hopefully of of things that 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 aren't just aren't being talked about yeah and it's mad isn't it that we have to do a word of mouth bump for steven soderbergh i mean that's insane isn't it like i I was watching the film and it was i loved it but i was like i'd love to have seen this on the big screen i bet this looks amazing big you know like yeah his yeah his ability to craft good looking images is just second to none he's one of the great filmmakers and yeah it, it isn't about and it's made on an interesting camera as well isn't it yeah. it's made it's because it's if you watch i mean you see it when the camera's still but when the camera's moved it's got this weird concertina effect so it could have been shot on a on a phone again i mean i don't know any about any of the production but it's really interesting <laughs> it's not just that it's well done it's interestingly done as well you know yeah, exactly. And th- there's, there's, there's got to be a space. I think he made a film, he made another film with Meryl Streep, didn't he, just before, that hasn't even been released here. Like, this is the second of his films that's that's just been glanced over. And I think that's right, isn't it? It's not a not that we would have any luck if we said that we didn't want those big blockbusters in that space, but it's just more space. There's, you know, we should be in an age, we're supposedly in the age of plenty. Where are the screens for these films, Where which are which are cinematic films? You know, I think that... A lot of filmmakers, particularly working at the indie level, don't necessarily get the budget or the you know the the time to make something which is worthy of or you know should be seen on a big screen. And that's not that's not their fault or you know that's just the the economics of it. But here is a filmmaker who knows how to do it on any kind of budget, and they're not getting the space. And I just think that's that's mad. And this is a yeah, this is just a really good movie. And it's the kind of movie that yeah, twenty years ago would have been. In a, you know in cinemas and in oh, I would have seen it in a multiplex in Luton it would have been would have been great so yeah I really think that it's worth it's worth the purchase I mean I'll definitely be watching it again yeah, 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 in yeah. that kind of rewatch mode of just spending time with a great filmmaker and interesting characters you know so it's well I would definitely recommend punting it's the only way to see it you can't even rent it so you have to sort of take the plunge and and honestly it's it it's an hour and forty five and it just zips by. Yeah. You know, in this era of two-hour, 40-minute bloated movies, you know, The Matrix is one for sure. Don't Look Up, which, you know, I, I don't think is as bad as a lot of people are making out, but it's still massively bloated. And to, just to see a film that that is absolutely within kind of script-writing shape that is so efficient and satisfying because of that is is just it's almost kind of like radical to see that you know <laughs> and again it just it makes you you know like appreciate the craft of it you know like it's such a tight screenplay and it just it's it feels exactly as long as it should do it's it's absolutely brilliant and also it reminded me of a of a film i love called the friends of eddie coyle with uh, robert mitchum from the early 70s peter yates film which has a very similar heist uh approach in terms of like um how they how they pull off the robbery and that is very similar um and tonally yeah it's got that kind of really muted muted palette and this is sort of detroit in the 60s i want to say around the sort of early 60s late 50s early 60s i think in terms of the the automobile monopolies which is a really interesting part of the story as well yeah and and but that isn't given to you in a in a straightforward way at all you kind of figure it out as you're going along and then what's really great is the sort of exit of the final character and the, and the position that he's in matches up parallels to the kind of status quo of the the social uh, commentary 
that probably doesn't make sense to listeners if you haven't if you haven't seen it. But when you see it, it's kind of like, yeah, that character is exactly where where he is, and the world has not changed at all because we live in this system where the rich get away with it, and you know, it it's just tied together so beautifully. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant movie. Go and watch Steven Soderbergh's latest. He's a new guy. You might, you might like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Before we get to our final movie, Dario, what, what's your next one that you want to shout about? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid we're probably going to get done for lording up the uh, the male auteurs again because uh, my my number two is the Card Counter, which is Paul Schrader's film of this year. I thought it might be having read your your piece for the newsletter. Yeah, I mean, just go and read the newsletter and you'll find out what I, I, I made of it. So this is, yeah, Paul Schrader's latest sort of take on the trauma of American society and masculinity and capitalism, starring Oscar Isaac, who's, you know, probably as big as anyone really right now. You know, if, if, if you ask B, then she'll tell me, he, 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 you know, he's wonderful. Um, but I saw him in scenes, scenes from a marriage. He's great in that. He does the leading man in, in you know, in June. Oh, well, the patriarch in, in, in June. He's, he's here, there and everywhere, really. But he's great in this. He's really, really good. As I say in the newsletter, I love films about gambling, about that sense of being on, on the edge of capitalism the turn of every card kind of defines your path through life. You know, as I wrote, we, we, we spend our lives mitigating that. We we want certainty. We want that kind of security and not have to deal with chance. But I love films about characters who are living their lives through chance all the time. And he's he kind of plays it as this mathematician philosopher, really. He's got this ice-cold process, not not only you know, through his gambling, but it's his very control of his way of life. And we find out as the, the film progresses, it's his way, of, uh, his way of dealing with the trauma that he's kind of buried. But um, it kind of comes to the surface again when he has a chance encounter with Ty Sheridan's character, Kirk, who is this sort of lost, aimless young American male with a grudge. And he tries to take him under his wing but there's this whole interesting relationship where, you know, there's this sort of teacher-mentor thing going on, but it never comes to fruition. And in fact, Oscar Isaac's character sort of loses patience with Tell. And there's this amazing scene where he kind of gets him in this room and, you know, threatens him with this high level of violence. And you you kind of realize where this trauma comes from. And, and there's these, I don't want to give away the story, within the narrative, there is these flashbacks back to Abu Ghraib, because I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that, you know, that's where the trauma is buried, that we get these very visceral scenes of Oscar Isaac back in Abu Ghraib under the tutelage of Willem Dafoe, who's this kind of major, who's in charge of the kind of torture process. And there's just amazing sort of GoPro scenes and, you know, really loud barracking sound design that puts you in this place of of kind of trauma of the victims but also of the perpetrators and and again it kind of relates to that you know i talked about in quo vadis aida you you're kind of trying to wrap your head around how people could do this but it's interesting because it kind of it does show you how how a sort of individuality and set and, and a, a sort of sense of self is taken away in the perpetrators of this torture you get this idea that they don't see these these others as human beings and it's really it's really pretty frightening and as the film sort of progresses you see that that tells process of stoicism that he uses very effectively as a gambler 
starts to break apart and especially when he comes back into co- contact with with Willem Dafoe's character you know later on in in the film but yeah it's just an amazing another amazing film in Schrader's what I've called in the newsletter his architecture of loneliness movies you know and it links to First Reformed but very much links to his other movies in this in this kind of area you know taxi driver and and um bringing out the dead you know these kinds of movies where it's about this sort of loneliness of 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 male characters who are burying their trauma for various reasons and how they how they deal with that so it's very much an auteurist movie if you're into that kind of thing if you're into schrader you'll be into it um it's not perfect by any means but i was just it's like you said with uh with the Soderbergh, I was into this from the first frame. There is a weight a man can accrue. This is where all the good stuff happens. The weight created by his past actions. It is a weight which can never be removed. All in. You count cards, right? I'm not that smart. But you win. You need someone to stake you. That's what you do. You run a stable. I'm always looking for a good thoroughbred. <laughs> Having been sentenced to 10 years in prison, I learned to count cards. How'd you do that? Poker's all about waiting. Check, raise, re-raise, call. Then something happens. You remember him? This is where all the good stuff happens. They made you the fall guy. You need to back off. You've been around him. He's a mystery. Yeah. Um, I really want to see it. Is it you know, I mean, as a, as a quick uh, aside, if people are looking for a... I've also written about Petite Maman and Power of the Dog in other places for my end of year roundup. So I, do, I have, we have been talking more about. We have a broad palette, but uh, yeah, I think what's interesting there is that although it is a kind of another male auteur, this is someone who benefited from having faith sort of in him past a lull, you know. And I know it's a privilege, particularly of male filmmakers. Um, white male filmmakers to make work that you know like the canyons which was self-funded but then something like dog eat dog with nicholas cage which just kind of disappeared he's he's been on a on a run of 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 a lack of success you know mediocre middling work you know the kind of the constant investment has paid off particularly with first reformed and then and then this you know and it's 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 a reminder that that filmmakers should be supported throughout their career and given that support even when and that's all filmmakers, not just um, you know all, all kind of all filmmakers who've proven that they've got something about them. And it's great that, he, that, that he, we're in that position where we've got these late works, which are so interesting and profound and, and complex and challenging. Because it, he could have been written off, you know, and he could have just been sort of put out to pasture, but but still still going with these. And yes, minding the same territory. But when it's interesting and good, then that's that's the main thing. So yeah. I'm, I'm really pleased that uh, that he's still making those kinds of works. Um, and I look forward to seeing it. So that brings us to our final film of the year, which this year we are in agreement on again. I think in the last couple of years we've had different films. But I remember we had, was it Portrait of a Lady on Fire we agreed on one year that was the best film? Of, I can't remember. There was something yeah. that we agreed on. There's definitely um, something where we've 
Yeah. We've agreed for sure. And uh, yeah, we kind of agree on this, which is Drive My Car, the uh, Murakami adaptation directed by Ryosuke Hamaguchi. So, Neil, is this both your favorite film of the year and the film that you think is the best film of the year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I talk, talked about it kind of <laughs> after the LFF where I was struggling to work out what to, <laughs> what to say about it. But yeah, I just I just think it's a masterpiece. I don't I think that it's doing such great work at such a high level. You know, it's an amazing adaptation of Murakami and Chekhov, and it's its own film in its own right as well. I think it's it's just it's doing all those things incredibly well. And it's the film that yeah that I've just I just love it. I've I've loved it since I saw it, and it, I keep sort of thinking about it, and I keep thinking. Mm. How did he do that? You know, like how did how did he make all of that work in such a way so that at the end of three hours, it just it creates this wave of emotion by not doing very much at all, you know, in terms of big, big moments. But it's it's this cumulative effect, which I just thought was absolutely remarkable. Um, and I keep thinking of these scenes and these images like Hiroshima and some of the choices that I just think like what a what a choice and and you know like the i'd forgotten that people had said that the credits are like 40 minutes in you know and <laughs> that that 40 minutes becomes becomes a prologue at the point that the credits start you know you think it's the film and then and it's just like everything is so beautifully considered yeah i i, I I've, I've not seen anything which has got close in terms of how it's made me feel about the filmmaking or just on an emotional level where at the end i'm just absolutely ruined <laughs> Yeah, I think even though I watched it in a far from ideal situation and the the projector in the cinema I was in in the ICA broke down with like 20 minutes to go when they were just coming to the house at the end and I was just like, oh, really didn't need that. And the, you know, it was one of those movies, I think we were in a small screening room and some people were just like that, like I was. I was like, this is unbelievable, but it was very uncomfortable. Um, so I need to see it again because I think that I just... It's the kind of film that the the depth of it requires almost like, you know, homework. And that's what I've, and I felt that in a kind of good way. It was like, I, I've I've downloaded Uncle Vanya because I wanted to listen to the play. I've reread the Murakami 10 page. It's only 10 pages, which is amazing that, it, you know, that it kind of does. The 10 pages is so amazing as a piece of short storytelling. But to go the other way and say, we're going to make a three-hour movie out of this is just... And to do it in this way is so amazing. I mean, I like Murakami adaptations. I think Norwegian Wood is brilliant. Um, the other one I've seen, obviously, is Burning, which I think is brilliant. So clearly, his movies... I don't know whether they lend themselves to filmmaking, but the people who've taken them on have done it in such a way where the the essence of the story is there and the translation to cinema has taken on its own thing but retained that essence which is always i think the the main thing about adaptation yeah just that that idea of stories we tell ourselves about our reality again it's it's like a similar theme just comes up again and you know this relationship that the main character has with his wife and him losing his wife early on in the movie again that's not it's not a huge spoiler it's just the it's the instigator of the of the the storytelling and then you know what he finds out about her and what he chooses then to believe 
about her and about what she thought about him and and how that plays into the way that they're working their way through the play and and it graphs onto the idea of using what does the text say as a sort of basis of what is what what is the reality of what's going on here is very different to the interpretation that we might make in a given in a given context and you know there's these clever little sort of problems in communication you know it's an experimental re- reworking of uncle vanya you know w- w- with all of these sort of elements in there but that again ties into the sort of the communication or lack of communication that comes between hi- him and the driver and how they find a they find a mode of communication that's on a on a slightly different level through this tape these tape recordings to begin with it's just this, i mean i could just go on and on about the little subtleties in there and that's why you know with it being 3 hours long and i i want to i feel like i've i've probably registered about you know half an hour's worth of of what it's really about because i need to see it again yeah no i feel i feel similarly yeah so that when those images come like i want to go back and think about that aspect of it you know um and yeah just the just the filmmaking i think is just is remarkable and what i i, I loved how it used both the the play itself, you know, so it uses Uncle Vanya as a text, but it also uses, you know, the, the, the production of the play and the making of something as a kind of, as a storytelling mechanism. So it becomes about the making of the thing and how the making of the thing is essentially him trying to hide from the emotional reality of what's happened. You know, he sort of constructs all of these, his, his way of working is insulates him from, he makes everyone learn the rhythm of the words so that it's automatic, you know, so that it becomes spoken in this very specific way. There's loads of different languages. So there's, you know, there's people speaking in their own language. So there's all, you know, so that they know they're, they're speaking, you know, in Japanese or uh, I think there's, a, you know, a Chinese actor. And like you say, there's a, there's a mute actress who's signing, you know, so all of these things feel like they're him hiding from having to deal with what, is going on in his life, but also what the play's about and what the play's trying to tell him. He's until until he, he can kind of face it no longer. And the the way it sort of resonated as, yeah, a kind of a life spent in art and that kind of that push and pull of, you know, I don't really want to do this, but I can't really do anything else. I need to do this, but also it's really hard to do this and I'm going to try and find a way to manage it. But it's you know, because because this is this is the only thing I know how to do. Um, but I, it kind of is, it's ruining me as well because it's it's such a heavy, particularly with something like Chekhov, particularly with certain kinds of works. It's such a heavy thing to to invest in emotionally. Um, you know, and I thought the the relationships he has with his actors, particularly the the well, the, the actress, the, the mute actress, and the her husband who's sort of you know involved in the in the making of the the, the productions of the he's a producer isn't he he's the producer yeah and the young actor who he casts as uncle vanya you know i just thought that was such a um just fascinating kind of decisions that the character makes um which are both kind of almost masochistic but also yeah yeah result in these profound experiences and sort of lessons on both sides it's 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 so dense um but also 3 hours does not feel like you know, it it never drags. Like it's so confidently paced, 
and beautiful to look at um that i never felt like i never i never was like well how long are we in i was just like where is it going and i think it's yeah which is a testament to it つまり私が若い女だからですか。1ヶ月半の稽古と2週間の本番です。ずるい人だ。はい、と。そこまで。失礼。君はどうして広島に。実家の裏が山なんです。大雨で地滑りが起きて、母はその事故で亡くなったんです。yeah, and it, I mean, you know, we, you and I, we got we had the discussions about the tag of slow cinema, but it's not slow cinema. It's just it, it's because it's not doing that thing of there are, you know, incredibly long sequences where only very minor things happen. No, there there, there is movement all the time. There is story all the time. There is character all the time. Um, and yeah, it's that interesting kind of parallel element of the the young guy who was having a f- an affair with his wife and their relationship i think is really interesting again because it's it's kind of like the young guy is coming from a young guy's perspective where it's about possession and he loved you know he's trying to sort of say i loved her just as much as you did and it's kind of like but look it's not about that who you knew is not who i know and i accept that i i i have come to accept that my wife is her own person for doing, you know, for being in this way, you know, and having the affair with you. But it doesn't alter our relationship. And it's kind of like an interesting idea around what relationships and value is and and possession and all of that kind of stuff is really interesting. And, and where we get happiness and where we get sadness from is often based around our perspective around what other people should be doing for us or not or behaving in, in respect of us you know so it's it's that and, and again i think that that ties in a little bit to the the kind of uncle vanya element the sort of process element of what are we all doing around each other to create this this experience you know yeah i i, I literally cannot wait to to revisit that movie and you know i've had a lot of interesting conversations about it and it's the one where people have been like you know what's your film of the year and it's just straight away drive my car straight away you know like um yeah 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 because i think as well like you sort of say because it it meant so much to me but also i was watching it knowing that there's there's so much to discover in this in this film you know and i think what you're sort of saying there it's like it's an adult film it's a film for adults you know like it was so refreshing to to see not just themes about being an adult and sort of you know being of, of a certain age but also that the honored the the complexities of that you know it didn't try to make anything trite or simplistic you know even jingoistic it was all just like this is this is a mess you know and it takes time to work through the mess of being an adult and having a past and having relationships 
and kind of moving forward with your life with with so much of your life behind you it's um which is obviously Vanya and and the sort of the main character um who are the, you know is not necessarily a likable character as well i think that's interesting like he does he's not pitiful you know he's not pitiful he's not you know overly sympathetic he is a he's as complex as the the life that he's trying to to wrestle with but it's this the relationship that forges between him and 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 the young woman in these little journeys and how that kind of grows and how he starts to you know it's that it, it it feels like a classic road movie you know where these kind of unlikely pair are put together so it kind of honors the tradition but also it never feels like it's it's taking an easy route of saying like oh look at this young person who's going to show him the ways of opening up emotionally like it's it doesn't do anything like that it it just it just it's kind of keeps you wrapped with these people who are just fascinating people to spend time with um i love spending time with them you know i could have spent another three hours in that world with these characters because they were so interesting yeah yeah and it's interesting about that distinction between the film that you loved and the film that you think is the best film because i probably loved the card counter better you know what i mean but in terms of something cinematic that is a kind of exemplar of of where cinema is or what cinema can do and having kind of like these broader questions then then you know this is the 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 higher aspiration movie in that in that sense so yeah it's just it's just so i mean again it it sounds you know it's it's difficult to you can make all, all these categories up or these criteria of judgment up as much as you want but I, you know the the experience of watching was just so profound and and like you know the card counter i want to watch again because i kind of like i i know i'm into the subject this i want to watch again because i kind of just want to understand more yeah it's interesting isn't it like yeah i think it's been a it's been a good year you know i think there's been a lot of really good movies we've sort of spent a lot of time talking over the you know through particularly through london film festival about a lot of stuff that we really really like but it just seems to sit apart and it's not saying that it's necessarily you know quote unquote better because who could judge that but it feels like mm. it feels like the most unique piece of work i've seen this year and the most kind of sort of individual piece of work you know that i just think i just i, I can't figure it out you know like in in a in a sense of wonder way like how how does that work for 3 hours you know <laughs> and how does everything you're trying to do line up so so perfectly um without it feeling like there's a oh you maybe shouldn't have done the vanya so much or you shouldn't have done this relationship so much like I, none of it feels like that it feels absolutely spot on and that's rare i think that you it feels as as, as kind of unique as that yeah absolutely so that is about it for season 14 of the cinematologist podcast we thank you very much for your continued patronage of our show we hope we've covered movies that you've liked or we've introduced you to subjects that maybe you haven't been familiar with before or we've reintroduced you to films that you've uh, you've seen and and uh, have given some new takes or taken you in some interesting directions hopefully we do want to say thank you to the people who have contributed to our show who you know with a, a no budget show like ours basically come on out of their own goodwill so first of all thank you very much to christine malloy and joe lawler who were on talking about rose plays julie so if you want to hear more about that go back to um episode 128 yes and thank you to maria cuervo gabriel solomons kathy lomax and lucy bolton who took time out to talk to me about independent magazines for uh, the special episode we did on that which was episode 129 
We're also at the London Film Festival and we thank very much Savina Petkova for coming on and, and talking about various films during the festival with us. And then after that, I talked to Dr. Alison Pierce uh, about her book, uh, Women Make Horror, and her amazing newsletter, The Losers Club. And it was also great to speak to So Mayer about uh, raising films and her recent survey, How We Work Now. Uh, the Raising Films teams have recently won an award I saw on social media. So congrats to them for their great work. And uh, it was great to talk to So again. Yep. And in the last episode, uh, Dario had a brilliant interview with the director, Frank Pavich, about Jodorowsky's June uh, to end our kind of guests for the season. Wonderful. So, Neil... It's been great to work with you. Hope you're going to have a nice restful um, rest of Christmas. And we're taking January off, so we'll be back early in February. Is that right? Yeah, we'll be back early Feb. We've got uh, uh, some exciting things lined up for the first few episodes of the new season. So, yeah, I'll be excited to get back. But it's time for a little bit of a winter hibernation from your lovable cinematologist's furry friends. (laughs) You're looking at my beard there. Is that what's going on? <laughs> I'm just looking at my looking at my own reflection. Oh, okay. The fine. slightly grizzled end of December. Yes. Uh, need to need to have a break, kind of. Indeed. So um, yeah, that will be it for this year. We wish you all um, a really happy holiday, happy Christmas, happy New Year, and we hope that you'll continue to listen into the New Year when we'll be back with season 15. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.